to the Explores. Time traveling through women's history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. If you're a 19th century American man, there are a few things you can be sure of. That well-bred women are generally sweet, moral, have a delicate constitution, and would never lie to you. Well, not on purpose. At least not about anything of real import. They aren't smart enough, or devious enough, to make successful spies. But it was these perceptions of a woman's place that made them so perfect for the job. During the Civil War, women flirted, cajoled, and inspired men to mansplain away top-secret information. They deceived along with the best of them, binding secrets up in their hair and sewing them into dresses. They wielded the sexist and racist notions that hemmed them in like a weapon, manipulating other people's prejudice to do things that no man could have pulled off. A lot of women spied, and for a myriad of reasons. But we are going to walk with four of them, following their exploits through the course of the war. We'll meet a Southern Society belle in Washington who seduced secrets out of important men and was arrested, famously, for her trouble. A Union woman in the heart of the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, who ran a successful spy ring and became one of the Union's secret weapons. We'll meet an African-American woman who infiltrated the Confederate White House, pretending to be enslaved and illiterate while she memorized war orders on Jeff Davis's desk. And the brazen Southern teenager who used every trick in her feminine arsenal to make Stonewall Jackson her BFF. It's about to get wild up in here, so grab your cipher, your sturdiest crinoline, and your disappearing ink. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My pirate queens, Edie, Emily, and Jessica. And my sweet lady presidents, Amy, Brendan, Avery, Caroline, Elizabeth, Eve, Jackie, Caitlin, Karen, Lauren, Louisa, Lindsay, Nancy, and Paul. So here we are again, back in 1861. But wait, before we get to spying, let's talk about where we are with technology in the 19th century. The spying trade goes back to the very founding of America, way back to the Revolutionary War. The country's first president, George Washington, was, in fact, a real spy enthusiast. He operated something called the Culper Ring, which was hugely successful in helping America win their independence. They used codes, aliases, and secret signals that included color-coded laundry. I wonder what my laundry says. They even used invisible ink in important correspondence, called a sympathetic stain, written between the lines of benign-seeming letters. There were even some ladies who joined in on the fun. In 1778, a gal named Nancy Morgan Hart disguised herself as a mentally disturbed gentleman in Georgia so she could get information about British defenses there. When a bunch of British soldiers came by her house, killed her last turkey, and told her to cook it for them, she got them very drunk on corn liquor, smuggled their guns out through a hole in the wall to her waiting daughter outside, and shot at them until they surrendered. She later watched them hung from a nearby tree. Damn, that's cold, Nancy. But by the 1860s, there hadn't been much by way of spying innovation. There hadn't been a need for it. 
But there was one business bent on doing some spying and making money at it, too. That was Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. It was founded in the 1850s in Chicago by Scotsman Alan J. Pinkerton, who became quite famous for solving a series of high-profile train robberies. His agents will go on to become some of the earliest members of the Secret Service. In fact, they'll save Abe Lincoln's life. But let's go back to 1856 for a minute, when someone unexpected walked into the Pinkerton office. Kate Warren, age 23, was looking for a job. A secretarial job, Mr. Pinkerton asked her? Nope, she wanted to be a detective. But there are no female detectives, he argued. And that was true. No police force will hire a woman until the 1890s, and the term policewoman won't show up until the 1920s. But Kate was persuasive. She argued that women could ferret out secrets from places that men just couldn't go. They could make friends with criminals' wives and mothers, for instance. They could charm gentlemen into spilling secrets, too. And they had an excellent eye for detail. He was so impressed with her speech that he hired her on the spot, and she became, you guessed it, a bomb detective. America's first lady private eye. It's Pinkerton's logo, a big eye, and the slogan, we never sleep, creepy, that helped cement that term. Except now, instead of a man in a trench coat, we're picturing Kate Warren instead. Yeah. She was probably not wearing such a coat in 1861 when she played a key role in foiling an assassination attempt on President-elect Abe Lincoln by infiltrating a group of sympathetic Confederates in Baltimore, Maryland. By the start of the Civil War, Pinkerton had hired more lady detectives, whom he called his Female Detective Bureau. They were all trained under Kate's supervision. Kate's, they get shit done, you know? By the beginning of the war, spying has, if anything, gone backwards in sophistication. Though there are people who have ideas about how to go about it. A man named Thaddeus Lowe raced to prove to Abe Lincoln that his newfangled hydrogen balloon would be a great spying resource. He soared up above Washington, armed with a telegraph key and a probably terrified Morse code operator in his wicker basket, to prove that he could see the faraway enemy and telegraph their positions to those waiting down below. Our friend Sarah Emma Edmonds was very impressed the first time she saw this balloon in action. This war will produce a number of unfortunate innovations, the machine gun, repeater rifles, and trench warfare. But the most celebrated of them all is the submarine. Well, at least the first one to sink an enemy vessel. It was originally developed in the South to try and break the blockade, choking off their ports. Alan Pinkerton, wise man that he is, actually sends one of his female spies down there to try and find out about this new contraption. Side note, it's because of Elizabeth Baker's excellent spying that the Union learned how to stop their torpedoes. She sunk their battleships, literally. Something to keep in mind as we travel. The main modes of transporting any secret information at this time are telegraph, train, steamer, horse, cart, or on foot. Most information needs to be delivered by hand, which means that someone has to find a way to get through the picket lines and hostile country to deliver it. Pinkerton and others get involved, officially, in spying for the military during the war. But much of the spying that's done is by civilians, people who take it upon themselves to smuggle supplies and information, who hide generals and escaped prisoners in their basements and attics. 
who seduce and trick the enemy, often at great risk to themselves. Let's start in the nation's capital in 1861, where a woman named Rose O'Neill Greenhow doesn't like how the political tide is turning. Rose has lived in the city for several decades, turning herself into one of the most fabulous and influential of socialites. Rose grew up in Maryland, which at this time is still very Southern, on a farm that relied in part on slaves for its labor. She lived with a few sisters, a delicate mother, and a rake of a father who seems to have been absent a lot, mostly because he liked to go out on benders. He often took his favorite slave, Jacob, on these benders at the local pub. One night, after having gotten Jacob drunk, the two of them stumbled home, but Rose's dad fell into a ditch and hit his head, hard. Jacob ran home for help, where an enslaved woman told him he'd better go back and finish him off, or else he'd cop the blame, which, sadly, was probably true. So Jacob went back and hit him over the head with a rock. I mean... Jacob was, in fact, held responsible. He was hung six months later. So Rose grew up in the shadow of that darkness and its consequences. This was the end of her life as she'd known it. Her mother tried to hold on to the farm, but was left with very little money and five children to care for. Eventually, she had to sell the place, and Rose was separated from all but one of her siblings, sent away to live with an aunt in a Washington boarding house. Maybe that's why Rose becomes a staunch and unforgiving Confederate. Regardless, you're not going to like her beliefs about slavery. But her life, her daring, and her adventures are worth diving into all the same. Rose didn't get a lot of schooling in her boarding house days, but the place still offered her a pretty valuable education. In those days, most politicians didn't live in the city, but rather came into town for the congressional season and stayed in boarding houses just like this one. Hers was full of prominent Democratic senators who Rose idolized and who really shaped her views about state rights and the institution of slavery. It's worth pointing out here that what we think of as Republican and Democrat were just about flipped at this time. The Republican Party was fairly new and pretty liberal-leaning, while the Democrats were all about state rights and, unfortunately, most of them were pro-slavery. She went to parties with Jefferson Davis, future Confederate president, and became close with several men who would one day become president. Damn! Rose learned how to read their body language, to ferret out their weaknesses and doubts, and learn the political ways of the city from their daily backdoor deals and maneuvering. She learned how to wield words like weapons, and to be very careful and precise with her speech. She put on fancy bonnets and took carriage rides down to the Senate, where she'd listen to these men make their cases. In this way, she became much admired and courted by men from both sides of the political aisle. And lucky for this smart, witty, beautiful, and very opinionated lady, her knack for witty banter and keen interest in politics were qualities generally admired by the men in Washington, unlike elsewhere. So it was that she met and married Robert Greenhow in 1835, a physician, scholar, high-ranking official in the State Department, and extremely eligible bachelor, despite the fact that she didn't come from much wealth herself. By the late 1850s, just before the war, she had lost her husband in a tragic accident and several of her children to illness. And though she had fallen on harder times since Robert died, was one of the best-connected socialite widows in town. 
perhaps, the gossip said, well-connected to several prominent men's gentleman parts. Rose was a good-looking lady who continued to have many admirers, who would come over to her house, often quite late in the evening. Take Bachelor President James Buchanan, who raised many an eyebrow when he showed up at Rose's house and stayed well past midnight. Men came and went, and the rumor mill churned out stories about her backdoor dalliances, hence her charming nickname, Wild Rose. After going to a ball in 1858, one of the most lavish of the decade, the New York Times described her as Glorious as a diamond, richly set. She was also a confident woman one that seemed to exude a kind of sensuality that men, single or married, young or old, seemed to struggle not to respond to. As Confederate Naval Secretary Stephen Mallory will say of her later, She was a clever woman. She started early in life into the great world and found in it many wild beasts, but only one to which she devoted special pursuit. And thereafter, she hunted man with that resistless zeal and unfailing instinct She had a shaft in her quiver for every defense, which game might attempt, and to which he was sure to succumb. But such charms don't always impress the other ladies. Mary Chestnut, our lovely southern diarist, said of Rose, She has all her life been for sale. At the beginning of the war, Rose is not in a happy place. One of her daughters had just died of typhoid fever, the fifth of her eight children that she'd lose. And she's pissed about Abe Lincoln's election and what she sees the North trying to do to the South. She's making no attempt to hide her feelings. While many Southern sympathizers leave the city in 1861, she's decided to stay and see what she can do for her beloved Confederacy. She's in the seat of power, where all of the big decisions are being made for the Union. She has access to both power and secrets, and finding them might involve a makeout sesh or two. These many assets eventually bring Captain Thomas Jordan to her door. He wants her to create and maintain a spy ring in Washington. He gives her a cipher full of mysterious symbols and teaches her how to make Morse code with her curtains. She can signal to a watching picket that way, or by doing the same thing on the street with one of her fancy fans. D.C. is a place of decidedly mixed allegiances. Before the war, it was a southern-leaning city, with deeply southern Virginia on one side and Maryland on the other. It's the seat of the Union government, while also being no more than a few hundred miles from the Confederate capital of Richmond. It's the perfect place for a well-connected lady spy to be. Rose doesn't find it hard to find recruits for her ring. Fellow ladies and their daughters, for example. Let's say that we are eager lady spies called to Rose's house for duty. She wants us to carry some letters through the capital, past camps full of soldiers, and through several picket lines, all without an official pass to do so. Um, and how are we supposed to do that? Well, to begin with, look down. That's where you will find the lady spies' hiding places of choice. Let's start with your hoop skirt. Remember that giant birdcage under your petticoats, strapped around your waist, your crinoline? Its steel bands are perfect for tying things onto, and their balloony circumference means that they can dangle down around your sensitive region without ever showing through. And not just a few things, many things. You'd be amazed how much stuff you can hide under a crinoline. 
One woman managed to get a bolt of cloth, several pairs of boots, sewing silk, and some packages of gilt braid under hers in one outing. One Kentucky girl made the papers for managing to smuggle 200 Colt revolvers through the lines under her skirt. One hopes they weren't loaded. Coming in hot! I asked you guys to guess about this one on my social media, and I have to say that I misled you just a little. She smuggled out those 200 guns all right, dangling down around that brave gal's lady parts. But over the course of two weeks, sorry about it. But I'm still gonna give it to the narrator, who over on Twitter guessed 175. But I mean, this girl managed to smuggle a small arsenal. So I think she wins, doesn't she? But that's not all. You also have your corset and many layers of petticoats at your disposal. And you can sew things into those voluminous folds. In this age that is so conscious of respecting a lady, how likely do you think it is that some guard will want to stick his hand in there? The answer is extremely unlikely. Even if he suspects you're carrying more than you should, he's probably too embarrassed to say so. And for us lady spies, that's a glorious thing. With the first major battle of the war looming, Rose continues to court many admirers, from generals down to their lowliest secretaries, in order to squeeze information out of them all. And she is really very good at it. Colonel Erasmus Darwin Keyes, military secretary to the Union's commanding general at the time, Winfield Scott, said that she was one of the most persuasive women that was ever known in Washington. And then there's Massachusetts Senator Henry D. Wilson, chairman of the Committee on Military Affairs. He supposedly wrote Rose 13 spicy love letters and signed them simply H. Though I don't know that I'd find them very titillating. He mostly writes about his indigestion, or how longing for Rose gives him indigestion. Hmm. At least it was Henry Wilson that Rose tried to pin the letters to when they were eventually discovered at her house by investigators. We don't know why Rose didn't burn the letters, she burned many others, or if Henry ever told her anything important, but they show that she was keeping regular steamy correspondence with high-ranking union officials, and maybe enjoying more than just words. Spy work by its nature is hard to verify, as you're not supposed to write anything down when you do it. A lot of what we know about these women's activities was written in their own memoirs, but all of the major stuff has been confirmed. So we're going to take these ladies at their word. When she learns the date when the Union Army plans to move, she calls Betty Duval, age 16, to her house and promptly goes about outfitting her as a farm girl. Her calico dress is plain, but she has a very fancy secret. A small black silk purse hidden up in her hairdo. The message in the purse is simple, written in cipher code. McDowell has certainly been ordered to advance on the 16th ROG. Betty rides a horse cart through Georgetown, past long rows of Union tents and across the guarded chain bridge. And somehow, no one stops her. Maybe it's too early in the war for them to worry much about checking passes. Or maybe it's just that she's a woman. She arrives the next day in Vienna, Virginia, where she asks a brigadier to deliver her message to General Beauregard. He was quite charmed by this. Brunette with sparkling brown eyes, perfect features, the glow of patriotic devotion burning in her face. And then, when he asked to see the message, she let her hair down. Literally. 
And he stood there entranced as out tumbled that fine little purse. And so it was that Rose Greenhow helped the Confederacy win the first battle of the Civil War. Overnight, Rose becomes a Southern sensation. And even as rumors of her deeds start to spread, publicity ain't a good thing for a spy. She seems to think she's untouchable. She continues to have her spy ring over for sewing parties, at which she talks mad smack about Lincoln and outlines new and ever more daring feats. Meanwhile, down in Virginia, we have two very different ladies fighting on opposite sides of the line. In Martinsburg, Virginia, now West Virginia, 17-year-old Belle Mariah Isabella Boyd is chomping at the bit to aid the Southern cause. This teenager, who will go on to be known, fabulously, as the Secesh Cleopatra, comes from a wealthy Virginia family. Several of Belle's family members join up to fight in the Confederacy, uncles, cousins, even her father, but the area actually voted against secession. You'd think that perhaps she would have tried to go and fight with them, but Belle is too much of a flirt to become a secret soldier. However, she is a fan of brazenly waving at soldiers, as well as organizing morale-boosting trips to local army barracks to get her flirt on. Belle likes attention, the more the better, which might be why a rival in Martinsburg called her the fastest girl in Virginia, or anywhere else. She may not, like Rose, be the most beautiful woman in a room, but her confidence and brazen charm knock the wind out of many. I am tall, she wrote to a cousin. I weigh 106 and one-half pounds. My eyes are of a dark blue and so expressive. Nose quite as large as ever, neither Grecian nor Roman, but beautifully shaped. And indeed, I am decidedly the most beautiful of all your cousins. And she isn't the only person to admire her personal charms. Her special something prompted a friend of author Charles Dickens to call her disturbingly attractive, with a face that suggested joyous recklessness. Joyous recklessness about sums spell up, I'd say. She is quick, precocious, and as her mother likes to say, very saucy. When she was 11, she rode her horse into a dinner party after being told she wasn't old enough to attend. When her mother gave her the ultimate death stare, she quipped, My horse is old enough, isn't he? Her maid, which is the genteel southern word for slave, by the way, is called Mama Eliza, and she has been with her since birth. Belle taught her how to read and write in secret, though it was illegal to do so. She still supports the Southern cause, but she isn't like Rose, who thinks slavery is just fine this way forever. Slavery, like all other forms of imperfect society, will have its day, she wrote, reflecting the thoughts of many Southern women. But the time for its final extinction in the Confederate States of America has not yet arrived. So yeah, still not great, but it is what it is. This isn't an easy place to be a fervent rebel. Boys from Martinsburg are joining up for both the Union and the Confederacy, which goes to show that there's a lot of truth behind the idea that this war is truly brother against brother. The town is so close to Washington that it keeps changing hands. The papers warn of the terrible fates that will befall women whose towns are taken by Yankees. Theft, arson, rape, and there are so few men left behind to defend a lady's honor. Southern diarist Mary Chestnut wrote, With men... It is on to the field, glory, 
honor, praise, and power. Women can only stay at home. And every paper reminds us that women are to be violated, ravished, in all manner of humiliation. How are the daughters of Eve punished? But women like Belle aren't about to lie back and think of liberty. When Martinsburg is taken over by Yankees in July of 1861, she's ready to defend both her home and her honor. As she put it, On they came, with all the pomp and circumstance of glorious war. The doors of our houses were dashed in. Our rooms were forcibly entered by soldiers who might literally be termed mad drunk. A bunch of Union soldiers crashes their way to her house and demands to know where their Confederate flags are hiding, to which her mother asks them if they would promptly leave. As arguments rage, one of them steps forward menacingly, and Belle starts to suspect that he's going to commit a Yankee outrage on her mother. I could stand it no longer. My blood was literally boiling in my veins. So she grabs a pistol, and when he advances, she shoots him dead. His angry fellow soldiers quickly gather around, raising their guns. And so what does Belle do? She spreads out her arms and says, Only those who are cowards shoot women. Now shoot! And what happens to Belle after she kills this officer in front of many witnesses? She's questioned, and then she's pardoned. The Union even puts some guards around her house for protection. At this point, no one in the Union is keen to punish women as war criminals. For one, they don't really think they're capable of being ones. And so off the budding spy goes, on to more ambitious and dangerous deeds. Meanwhile, almost 200 miles away in the heart of the Confederacy is Elizabeth Van Lu. Her family is originally from the North, but they made their fortune in Richmond, Virginia. Her father's business was one that Thomas Jefferson and his new university, UVA, spent money in. Enough money that the Van Loos bought an elegant mansion right in the heart of town. Despite their money and their good address, where they threw lavish parties for presidents and poets like Edgar Allan Poe, they were never quite considered one of us. One of the reasons was because of the Van Loo lady's attitude towards slavery. It was my sad privilege to differ in many things from the perceived opinions and principles in my locality. This has made my life intensely sad and earnest. When Elizabeth's father died, he left about 15 slaves to his wife, stating that she wasn't to free them. So she and Elizabeth took it in legal baby steps, letting them go out and do freelance work for a small sum so they could eventually buy their own freedom. Many of them stayed and worked for these ladies even when they were free. The word servant in her house wasn't a euphemism. Elizabeth also spent chunks of her $10,000 inheritance to buy slaves just so she could free them. So yeah, Elizabeth's pretty much the bomb. Slavery is arrogant, she said. It is jealous and intrusive, is cruel, is despotic, not only over the slave but over the community, the state. Just like Rose, her political views weren't exactly a secret, which makes her stick out like a very sore thumb in the South. But by 1861, Elizabeth is in her 40s, considered a harmless, eccentric old maid. Not someone to put on the neighborhood watch list. Obviously, she is very keen to see the Union win this war. But living in the Confederate capital, it could be dangerous to openly express such a view. So every day she goes about her usual business, paying calls and nodding vaguely over tea when people talk about wanting to hang Abe Lincoln. 
While Rose was celebrating her win over the Battle of Bull Run, Elizabeth watches quietly as local families do what is called stirring up the animals, yelling at and insulting the 1,300-plus Union prisoners captured there and brought back to Richmond through the bars of their makeshift prison. But at the same time, you can be sure that she's resurrecting her bygone flirting skills to try and work her way into those jails to help them out. First, she goes to see David H. Todd, who happens to be Abe Lincoln's brother-in-law, awkward, who is the man in charge at Libby Prison, and asks if she can serve as nurse for these soldiers. Todd, it must be said, is kind of a dick. He'll become rather notorious for his foul treatment at this prison, giving soldiers rotten food and barely any medical attention. He apparently ran one prisoner through for lighting a contraband candle to dress his own wound with. So unsurprisingly, he said he couldn't allow it. He also added, You are the first and only lady that has made any such application. Eventually, she'll smile through her teeth, probably hoping he'll fall off a cliff ASAP, while buttering him up with some of her ginger cake. But first, she goes right on over Todd's head, straight to one Christopher Memminger. She flatters and praises, making herself seem as unthreatening as possible. When that doesn't work, she throws a tried-and-true Victorian woman's Hail Mary. But it's my Christian duty to tend the sick, sir. Remember that in this America, women are paragons of virtue and morals. If she says that God wants to let her in, then I guess we kind of have to? Good one, Lizzie. She starts visiting the prison regularly, bringing the Union prisoners food, books, clothing. Later, an amputee named Louis Francis will say that he would have died in there if not for Lizzie and her mother. But she also brings them messages and the means to write her ones back. She has servants bring them eggs, which the prisoners drain and fill with secret messages. They prick letters in the books she loans them to form messages, created with the needles she sews into the collars of donated shirts. Sneaky! For their pains, she and her mom get a heaping pile of public censure. They even get into the paper. These two women have been expending their opulent means and aiding and giving comfort to the miscreants who have invaded our sacred soil. Bent on raping and murder, the desolation of our homes and sacred places, and the ruin and dishonor of our families. Their names aren't used, but everyone knows who the story is about, she said. I have had brave men shake their fingers in my face and say terrible things. We had threats of being driven away, threats of fire, threats of death. Surely madness was upon the people. And it sure is upon the people of Richmond. By 1862, it will be under martial law. Jeff Davis, president of the Confederacy, is demanding spies are caught and imprisoned, and the Confederate Congress has passed a law that lets troops and government officials seize the property of any women suspected of being spies. So the Van Lu ladies contributed money and supplies to Confederate soldiers, trying to make a show of their patriotism. And guess what? They just kept on doing their thing for the Union. Lizzie isn't arrested. She isn't detained. Because really, she's just an eccentric old biddy. What harm can she really do? It turns out, quite a lot. Back in D.C., Rose Greenhow is still spying with a vengeance. But she's starting to get worried that she's being followed. Paranoid, she spends hours at her Singer sewing machine, 
working secrets and things of value into her underclothes, and stitching maps into her lining and cuffs. The most important letters go behind the laces of her corset, right up against her mountain's majesty. And she's right, she is being watched by famed detective Alan Pinkerton. He and his agents stalk her undercover, following her to markets and parlors, and staking out her house. But that doesn't stop Rose from carrying on with her activities, seducing information out of the men around her, and passing them on to the Confederates across the Potomac River. She even openly slams the Union Army in the Senate gallery. When a man interrupts her to say her words are treasonous, she gives him a serve about how rude he's being, butting into her conversation. Rose is pretty good at finding ways of making men feel like idiots. Finally, on August 23, 1861, Pinkerton makes his move. But Rose is warned by a neighbor, during a walk home, that there are people guarding her house, and so she has at least a few minutes of scheming to do. She takes a note out of her pocket, swallows it, and walks regally up the stairs to her house. When Pinkerton meets her at the front stoop to say he's come to arrest her, she characteristically demands to see his warrant. I have no power to resist you, but had I been inside of my house, I would have killed one of you before I submitted to this illegal process. Damn, Rose. They hoped for a nice, quiet, leisurely search through her house, but Rose's cherished eight-year-old daughter, Little Rose, ran out into the yard screaming, Mother has been arrested! So they get to searching real quick before a crowd can gather. And this moment really showcases the fact that Rose is not a trained spy. She's left stuff everywhere. They find notes on military preparations full of things that she really has no right to know. But in the madness, Rose is able to get rid of a lot of her letters. She tucks notes in new hiding places while the detectives aren't looking. She even manages to get up to her bedroom, saying she needs to change, and destroys a few important papers, including the cipher she used for all of her correspondence. And so Rose and her daughter are put under lock and key, arresting anyone who shows up at her door. Although agonizing anxieties filled my soul, I was apparently careless and sarcastic and, I know, tantalizing in the extreme. The triumphant officers break out her finest brandy and start bragging about all of the fine times they're going to be having with their lady prisoners. And Rose realizes what a heaping pile of trouble she's in. My castle, she wrote, has become my prison. And so it is that her house is renamed the House of Detention for Female Rebels. But the press dub it Fort Greenhow. At first, she's able to charm a few officers into giving her some alone time, during which she destroys all remaining evidence. But as her weeks of house arrest go on, she comes to realize... The dark and gloomy perils that environed me. The men try to get her to confess to what she's done by threat and degradation. They never let her dress or sleep with the door closed. They dangle her lady friends in front of her, keeping them under house arrest in the same house, but they won't let Rose see them. But even with all of this, the ever-resourceful Rose manages to keep on spying. Girls gotta stay busy. She sends benign-sounding letters to friends, filled with secret messages. She uses balls of yarn to weave color-coded tapestries. She even gets little Rose, who's allowed to play outside in the yard, to pass messages to and from agents on the other side of the fence. 
Even as the guards continued to isolate her, decreasing her food and stepping up their interrogations, with no legal recourse and no rescue in sight, she keeps on spying. When men like the Secretary of State tell her that she'd better cooperate, she lectures him on her American rights. Freedom of speech and of opinion is the birthright of Americans, she said. You have held me, sir, to a man's accountability, and therefore claim the right to speak on subjects usually considered beyond a woman's can. This lady did not come to play. Meanwhile, back in Martinsburg, Belle Boyd is reading all about Rose Greenhow and longing for the same kind of importance and fame. Belle isn't always good at being discreet, but that's all a part of her process. She's of the mind that if she's loud enough and central enough, no one will suspect her of being underhanded. And maybe Belle is onto something there. Most women aren't searched when they pass through picket lines, and those who are, if they play meek and sweet, aren't searched hard. Of checking such women at camp borders, a union picket said, Some of the old and ugly ladies made a great fuss about being searched, but the young and good-looking ones are a great deal more amenable. Gross. But Belle knows how to play it. One time, when delivering a very secret message, she keeps that message out in her hands, even fanning her face with it. It could easily have been checked, but it never was. She's in a great place to do a bit of pro bono spying, right in the thick of the Eastern War Zone, surrounded by Union camps just begging for their secrets to be pilfered. And she's very keen to aid the cause, whether that cause is keen on her or not. Apparently she has a real thing for Confederate Commander Stonewall Jackson. Can we just talk about how weird this crush is for a minute? This guy is 40 years old, intensely religious, and because he thinks one of his arms is longer than the other, he'll often hold one up over his head to improve his circulation. He also has a thing for lemons, which he sucks at every available opportunity. So there's that. Belle takes to riding her horse Fleeter around the state, trying to get the Confederacy to take her seriously as a spy. She even trains him to go down on his knees on command so that she can hide if Yankee soldiers happen by. Belle's problem is that she wants to be noticed, which is not a great attitude for a wannabe spy. It's hard to blend into the wallpaper when you're walking around with a little black dog dressed up in a fine, fitted jacket, which she uses to hide letters and other contraband. Do you remember the last time you saw a tiny dog in a jacket? You stopped. I'm sure you did and your heart exploded into tiny butterflies of joy. In her quest for renown, she sneaks into a Confederate camp one night in a delightful sexy soldier outfit that feels to me a lot like the 19th century equivalent of the sexy firefighter Halloween costume, selling soldiers stolen whiskey for $2 a pop. One of them yanks a bottle out from under her skirt, rudely, and so she pulls a knife on him, which I think is fair. But she manages to turn this situation into a fight, where 30 men are badly wounded. Whoops. But that's not to say that she's not doing productive things. Like many unofficial lady spies, including Rose Greenhow, she uses her womanly weeds to great and truly helpful effect. With the North choking off the South's supply lines as part of their strategy, vital supplies like quinine, postage stamps, and coffee are becoming increasingly scarce. 
And so the South develops their own underground railroad system, called the Secret Line, a network of couriers stretching between Richmond and Washington that get news and supplies where they're needed, the same line Wild Rose uses in Washington. But Belle wants to stand out from the growing field of freelance operatives, so she starts creeping into Union camps at night, picking up lonely sabers and pistols, and hiding them off in the woods. I had been confiscating and concealing their swords and pistols on every possible occasion, and many an officer, looking about everywhere for the missing weapons, little dreamed who it was that had taken them. Other girls would come along behind her and tie these stolen goods to their crinolines. This is one of the most popular and successful ways for a lady to smuggle things across the lines, but women also find other ways to hide their bounty. They cook pistol pieces into bread loaves, hide ammunition inside parasols. They even pack quinine into hollow doll's heads and jars of preserves. Now that's ingenious. It's no surprise that Belle manages to get arrested three times behind federal lines. But when she's caught, officials don't seem to know what to do with her. They just slap her lightly on her delicate wrist and send her home again. After being taken in for questioning and getting away with it, she wrote, My little rebel heart was on fire, and I indulged in thoughts and plans of vengeance. Every time they let her go, she gets bolder. It's crazy that the Union doesn't try to do more to stop her. But then again, she's just a silly 17-year-old girl, right? Turns out that constantly underestimating the ladies is one of our very best weapons. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Van Lu is reading glowing stories about Rose in Richmond newspapers, which are all outraged at her treatment in Washington. Nothing is so hideous in the tyranny inaugurated at Washington as its treatment of helpless women, one story said. None but savages and brutes make war upon the defenseless sex. Mary Chestnut was rather tickled by the notion of a lady spy. She wrote... It is delightful to be thought of enough consequence to be arrested. But Lizzie finds none of this at all delightful. There is a very Victorian double standard at play here. If Rose Greenhow was a man, or, it must be said, a person of color, she would be tried for treason and perhaps hung for her crimes. Union spy Timothy Webster is the first spy to be hung, right there in Richmond, in April of 1862. But because Rose is white, female, and privileged, she's treated like a fairly delicate flower. That makes Lizzie mad. But hey now, two can play at that game. At this time, Richmond's under martial law. Several men and women have been arrested under nothing more than a suspicion that they're sympathetic to the Union. But she kicks up her spying efforts at Richmond's prisons anyway, making friends with northern-leaning guards, ferreting out potential spies, and finding ever more ingenious ways to smuggle in money, supplies, and information. She frequently brings an antique French warmer plate to the prison, its hollow bottom filled with money and things. One day, when she overhears a guard say he's going to inspect it next time she visits, she makes sure to fill it with boiling water. When he grabs it from her, it scalds the hell out of his hand. Yes, Lizzie! But she isn't just helping soldiers, she's setting up a full-blown spy ring, recruiting railroad conductors, servants, and others who are keen to help the Union cause. This is a very dangerous business, most especially for the feather in Lizzie's spy ring's cap. 
Mary Jane Bowser. When Elizabeth hears that Verena Davis, First Lady of the Confederacy, needs some help in the Confederate White House, she helpfully offers her slave Mary's services. Except, of course, that Mary isn't a slave. Like, at all. She's a free woman, originally Mary Jane Richards, who grew up under Elizabeth's care. As a young girl, she was sent north to get an education and spent time abroad as a missionary in Liberia. But she was unhappy there, so Mary decided to come home to Richmond, where she was arrested in 1860 because the law didn't recognize her freedom. All freed persons of color had to leave the state of Virginia within a year and couldn't return, or they risked being re-enslaved. Yikes. To get her out, Elizabeth paid bail and had to say that, just kidding, she was Mary's owner. Now it's time to play that card again. Mary agrees to move into the Confederate White House, acting the part of dim-witted house servant so she can gather information on the sly. Because of course this woman can't read. I mean, the law says so. And so Mary Jane uses their prejudice against them. She reads the Confederate president's papers when he's away from his desk and eavesdrops on his conversations, committing them to memory. She transcribes letters and maps, and then, it's said, she smuggles them out in the first lady's dresses. She rips open part of Verena's waistband, sews messages into it, and then leaves the dresses with a seamstress, who lets Elizabeth come and have a read. But Elizabeth can't be seen swinging by the seamstress's shop too often. So if Mary Jane has really important intel, she'll hang a red shirt out on the laundry line to alert Lizzie that she needs to come. Elizabeth wrote of the arrangement, When I open my eyes in the morning, I say to the servant, What news, Mary? And my caterer never fails. What? Years after the war, Verena Davis will say that no such person ever worked in the Confederate White House, though Mary Bowser and Elizabeth Van Lu will say she did. There's no hard paper evidence that she was ever there. Well, no hard evidence except their word, and the word of several others involved. But can we just pause and appreciate how good this is? So good. While Elizabeth is working out how to get into prisons and to sneak men out of them, Rose Greenhow and Little Rose have been moved into Capitol Prison after five months of house arrest. Which is kind of crazy because it's the boarding house Rose spent her formative years in. And in many years to come, it'll be the spot where the Supreme Court will stand. Except the place isn't anything like Rose remembers it. Conditions are not great in what is called the American Bastille, It's filthy, overcrowded, and stinks to high hell. The food is both terrible and scarce, greasy beans and bad bread that leave little Rose crying at night from hunger. They aren't allowed outside to exercise. Her room is dark, the windows barred. Men are hung from the gallows here. So, not a super nice place to spend time. Rose spends the long nights clutching her empty pistol, trying to keep the rats at bay and using her candle to burn bedbugs off the wall. She lies on their itchy straw pallet, burning with indignation. Today, the dinner for myself and child consists of a bowl of beans, swimming in grease, two slices of fat junk, and two slices of bread. Still, my consolation is, every dog has his day. Prison visitors pay to pass by and see her, like she's an exhibit in the zoo. 
And through it all, Rose holds on to her fire. When, inevitably, little Rose gets sick, Rose makes the questionable decision to deny the army doctor and demand her personal one. She just doesn't trust this guy. And it's a small act of rebellion, of regaining control and asserting her agency. In a situation where she has no idea what's going to happen to her, you've got to admire her for that. She somehow finds the strength to pry up a wooden floorboard in their cell and lower her daughter down through it, into a cell full of Confederates below, who share news and food with them. And don't worry, our Rose is still spying. Eventually, she's called up in front of the prison commission and questioned about the scraps of paper Pinkerton found in her house. From beginning to end of this little inquisition, Rose manages to completely run the entire show, as imperious as any queen. Without any representation, she argues that, one, as a Southerner, she has a right to defend her cause. Two, that she's done nothing but write letters to friends expressing her opinion. As an American citizen, isn't she allowed that freedom of speech? Three, it isn't her fault if people tell her things. If Mr. Lincoln's friends will pour into my ears such important information, am I to be held responsible for all that? The Scarlet O'Hara little old me defense with a side of carbolic acid. I like it. Representing herself, she completely rips apart the guys who are questioning her. I can't even tell you how much she schools these fools, who just seem incapable of really grilling a woman. So they are at a stalemate, and she goes back to prison and awaits further judgment. What Lincoln really wants is to send her south, out of the capital. But apparently Sarah Emma Edmonds' beloved General McClellan thinks she has too much information to let her go. And apparently she doesn't want to go south. She wants to stay at home where she can get the most vital intel. Yikes, girl. But her stamina is failing, with nothing to do and a child wasting away before her eyes. Day glides into night, with nothing to mark the flight of time. And hope paints no silver lining to the clouds which hang over me. Eventually, she is given a choice. Take the oath of allegiance and stay, or be exiled south for the duration. Tired of prison, she takes the second option. Meanwhile, in Richmond, things are getting much more dangerous for Elizabeth and Mary Jane. Confederate agents are watching Lizzie closely, as are her neighbors, trying to sniff out any foul wind. But Elizabeth isn't about to lie down and take the way Union prisoners are being treated. Rose Greenhow thinks she has it bad. Guards take any opportunity to shoot the men under their charge. To lose prisoners, she wrote later, was an expression very much in vogue. And we all understood that it meant cold-blooded murder. Though security increases around Libby Prison, she finds ingenious ways to sneak prisoners out of it. She bribes guards to send prisoners to less guarded spaces, like the hospital, where they're easier to get at. She sends the messages there in the bottom of a custard dish. I'm telling you, kitchen implements, who knew they were so devious? It helps that she has a friend on the inside. Erasmus Ross. Again with Erasmus. Can we please bring this name back again? makes a big show of being mean to prisoners, yelling and swearing at them. One day, he punches William H. Lounsbury in the stomach, screaming, You blue-bellied Yankee, come down to my office! William thinks that maybe he's about to be shot. But no, Erasmus hands him a Confederate uniform and tells him how to get to the Van Loos. 
She has her bravest, sharpest servants, often African-American, constantly hovering around the prison, waiting to receive and guide such escapees. At her house, they're put in a secret attic room tucked behind a chest of drawers. Its secret door, almost like one of those library rooms I've always wanted, where you pull out a book and the whole wall turns. She gives them food, money, and tells them where to go for help getting north. All of this while Confederate men are constantly showing up at her house, trying to trip her up by pretending to be Union sympathizers. How is she supposed to know which is an escaped prisoner in a stolen uniform and which are just jerks trying to get her caught? There's also the fact that her Union-loving brother is having major trouble in his marriage to a contentious, fiercely Southern wife who is currently living under the same roof with them. Lizzie's smuggling men up and down the stairs, right by that sister's door. Yikes. Her two little nieces are living with her, too. One day, they sneak up behind Lizzie to the secret room and take a peek at what's behind the door. Two very smelly men, all dirt-streaked. One of them smiles and says, My, what a spanking you would have if your aunt had turned around. The girls will go on to keep this secret from everyone, including their auntie. Good little union girls. Or maybe just afraid the stinky men would come and eat them. Oh, but it gets better. One time, Lizzie has a 15-year-old agent named Josephine go to visit the prison hospital, where she gives a few of the boys there a plan. One of them will play dead. The other one will cover him up and move him to the morgue. Then, during a staged fight between the other inmates, they too will sneak out the front door unobserved. And it works! What? And Lizzie doesn't feel at all bad about it. Desperate situations sometimes require despicable remedies. Meanwhile, she's recruiting new spies with a vengeance. Her growing network write gossip on pieces of paper, tie them to flowers, and leave them on certain gravestones at St. John's in the dead of night. Men in Elizabeth's employ go out shopping with secrets sewn into their clothing, and women tuck things into eggs and in the false bottoms of baskets. They're all playing with fire, but no more so than the people whose freedom hang in the balance. Lizzie organizes their efforts and fuels her agent's courage, using her connections to bring people over to the cause. She also leads from the front, delivering secret messages herself dressed as a farmhand in buckskin leggings. Sometimes she even stuffs her cheeks with cotton balls to distort her features. But the more people she helps escape, the tighter security gets around the prisons and throughout the city. When Jeff Davis's coachman runs away, it brings Mary Jane under much greater scrutiny. She's also subject to stops from impressment agents who steal supplies for the increasingly floundering Confederate army. They've already taken three of her pretty carriage horses when Elizabeth brings the remaining one inside when they come around. We spread straw upon the study floor, and our horse accepted at once his position and behaved as though he thoroughly understood matters. She stays calm and cool when they search her house, even when there are Union men up in her attic. In fact, she even serves them cookies. It's this pleasing Southern domesticity and her place in high society that probably save Elizabeth from jail. A little further north, Belle Boyd's mother has sent her down to Front Royal, hoping she'll be less in the way of the fighting there. Good luck with that, Mom. She makes herself useful at her aunt's Fishback Hotel, flirting with Union officers. 
The local girls sure don't like her much, as per usual, calling her all surface vain and hollow, and perfectly insane on the subject of man. Crazy she might be, but she's also crazy focused, working her supposedly silly way into many high up union hearts. One Captain Keeley brings her many things, among them some very remarkable effusions, some withered flowers, and last, not least, a great deal of very important information. Including information about a council of war that's happening in the hotel where she's living. That night she creeps upstairs, climbs into a certain cupboard, and listens through a hole drilled into its bottom as the generals unveil their plans below. Then she dresses up in boys' clothes, as you do, and rides through the night to Stonewall's cavalry commander. Good God, Miss Bell, is that you? He supposedly said upon seeing her. Where did you come from? Have you been dropped from the clouds? Or am I dreaming? She delivers her intel and is back in bed before daybreak. Bell's much better at sneaking out than I was. But her real claim to fame comes at the dawn of the Battle of Front Royal. As Union troops march through, readying themselves for a Confederate attack, she asks a passing soldier what's going on. He says they're planning to burn the bridges and the ammunition stores before the rebel army can get to them. She knows where the Union troops are, and realizes that they don't yet have the numbers to fight a full-on attack. The Confederates could win the day if she helps them. And so she takes off through the town and across the fields. Run, Bale! Run! Yankees shoot at her back and rebels shoot at her front, not knowing she's really on their side. Bullets rip through her skirts from every direction. I shall never run again as I ran on that, to me, memorable day. Hope, fear, the love of life, and the determination to serve my country to the last conspired to fill my heart with more than feminine courage and to lend preternatural strength and swiftness to my limbs. Private Henry Kidd, who knows Belle well, can't believe what he's seeing. She tells him the news and makes sure to blow him a kiss before leaving. Belle might have flaws, but she knows how to make an entrance. Their cheers rang in my ears for many days afterwards, and I still hear them frequently in my dreams. And so the Confederates rushed in and won Front Royal, handing Stonewall Jackson his first big victory of the war. Apparently, he even sent her a thankful note. Although it must be said that, when she tries to visit her crush later, he refuses to see her. No matter what service she's done, he still thinks that she's more nuisance than help. Classy Stonewall. At this point, she's officially famous, with northern reporters calling her an accomplished prostitute who had figured largely in the rebel cause. But eventually, one of her bows sets a trap for her and she's caught again. But this time she's actually arrested. She gets sent up to our old friend's old capital prison, plunked into Rose Greenhouse's old cell. While in jail, she makes herself as annoying as possible. Local admirers keep her stocked with chicken, soup, and beefsteak, as well as newspapers, gratifyingly filled with her name. One story about her is titled, The Secesh Cleopatra's Caged at Last. She calls her guards mean names and sings loud Confederate songs. And she flirts, of course. Gotta pass the time somehow. She passes notes with a dashing prisoner across the prison aisle from her. That is, until one of the guards skewers her arm a little with his bayonet. 
That wound will leave her with a scar, but she thinks it's kind of cool. After just a month, she's exchanged for Union prisoners, sent right back down south. It seems like the government is more keen on getting her out of their faces than they are on taking her seriously, which is pretty lucky for Belle. Back in Richmond, she finally meets her idol, Rose Greenhow. They go around to hospitals together, caring for the wounded and telling them stories of all their daring do. In Richmond, Rose is hailed as a hero. Even President Davis goes to see her, praising her iron will and service and offering her a couple thousand dollars by way of thanks. But still, the stuffy Richmond ladies are hesitant to accept her, with so many tales of those late-night callers. So when Davis asks her to sail over to Europe and drum up support for the cause, she's more than ready to comply. She will be one of the only women, if not the only, sent overseas as an emissary. But to get there, Rose and her daughter have to run the blockade. Essentially, they have to take a stealth ship, sneaking through a Union line by night, which is a very dangerous business. Over the course of the war, more than a thousand blockade runners are either caught or sunk. Some one of three stealth ships don't make it through the lines. She goes to London first, where people say things that aren't very helpful, as they've already abolished slavery and all. And then to Paris, where she meets up with none other than Napoleon III in the Tuileries Palace. Yes, that's right. An American woman holding court on her own without an escort with Napoleon. Regal as hell. He's sympathetic, but essentially says, Oh, that would be great, Marcherie, but England will need to go along. Which, of course, they won't. She spends months going to parties, talking shop, maybe scoring some amorous conquests, and writing her memoir, which the New York Times calls As Bitter as a Woman's Hate Can Make It. In the end, she gets sick and tired of everybody's bullshit. The South is losing, and she just wants to go home. The desperate struggle in which my people are engaged, she wrote, is ever-present. I long to be near, to share in the triumph or be buried under the ruins. She put a tearful little rose into a school in Paris for safekeeping and gets ready to sail. The stealth ship she takes back to Washington, called the Condor, makes it to the coast of Wilmington, North Carolina, in the dead of night. It's hard to see anything without a lot of light to guide them. So when Union blockade runners open fire, the captain swerves to miss what he thinks is a Union ship and runs aground on the wreck of another blockade runner. Panicked and completely unwilling to be taken prisoner ever again, Rose demands to be given a lifeboat to get to shore. And so off she goes into dark and choppy waters in a heavy black silk dress and a leather satchel containing letters for Richmond and $2,000 of heavy gold coins around her neck. Not the greatest swimming costume. And so it was that, when the boat capsized just 300 yards from shore, Rose Greenhow drowned. The next morning, a ship captain found her body on the beach, looking calm and still regal. She was honored with a full military burial. At the last day, the local paper said, when the martyrs who have with their blood sealed their devotions to liberty shall stand together, foremost among the throng, equal with the Rollins and Joan d'Arcs of history, will appear the Confederate heroine Rose Greenhow. Think what you want about Rose Greenhow's politics, but she was smart, principled, fierce, and knew how to fully commit to a cause. And in the end, she died for it. 
Meanwhile, Belle has been arrested again for going home to Martinsburg to see her ailing father. It's now technically in Union territory, and she promised to stay in the South for the rest of the war. And that's how she lands herself in Washington again. She spends some of her incarceration blowing kisses to her guard, one Lyons Wakeman. Remember her? Little does Belle know she's flirting with a secret lady soldier, though I don't think that knowledge would have changed much. When she's finally exchanged again, she can't go home to her family. So what to do? She decides to follow Rose Greenhouse's example and go to Europe to fight for the cause. With $500 in gold from the Confederate government and letters of introduction in her pocket, she boards the ship Greyhound and sets sail. She holds her breath as it glides through the black water, all lights put out, hoping to slip through the blockade without incident. But it isn't to be. A Union ship finds and fires on them, and though they run, they can't hide. When the Union boards, the new captain of the boat puts Belle under guard in her room, giving orders to have her stabbed if she tries to come out of it. He asks her if she's scared. No, I am not, she says. I have never been frightened at a Yankee in my life. So how does Belle stay busy? Well, she helps the captain escape, gets rid of all of her secret documents, and seduces the hell out of a lieutenant. She and Union Lieutenant Samuel Harding seem to make an instant connection. It doesn't seem to matter to him that she's a known rebel spy. Bells just fly like that. They're still on the ship when he asks her to marry him. Which feels a little questionable, given the whole prisoner-jailer thing, but okay. When they arrived in Boston, the government promptly tells her that they want her out of America, post-haste. So she goes to London, where she begins to write her memoir and plans her own wedding, probably using the money she's supposed to put toward furthering the Confederate cause. But first, there's the pesky problem of converting her beau into a Southerner. Turns out he's down with it. The Boston Post said she had made a fool of him. After the wedding, her husband goes back to America, which, given the circumstances, seems unwise, and he's arrested for treason. Bell, still furiously penning her memoir, writes to Abe Lincoln to try and blackmail him into letting Samuel walk free. I think it would be well for you and me to come to some definite understanding. My book was originally not intended to be more than a personal narrative. But since my husband's unjust arrest, I had introduced many atrocious circumstances respecting your government which would open the eyes of Europe to many things of which the world on this side of the water little dreams. We don't know that Abe ever wrote her back, but Belle's got some serious cojones. Meanwhile, back in Richmond, things are just getting more tense for Elizabeth Van Lu and her spy network. Spies can be shot dead for helping runaways. Someone throws a death threat at Lizzie's house, signed, From the Whitecaps. Richmond is becoming more dangerous with every passing day. Meanwhile, John McCullough, one of the guys she'd helped escape by playing dead, is telling General Benjamin Butler all about her. Butler is impressed, so he gets a letter through to her, sending a spy along with it, who shows her how to use a special kind of disappearing ink. Revealing it involves spreading tannic acid across the letter, then holding it by the fire to reveal the message underneath. That's some 007 shit right there. He also gave her a cipher and an odorless, colorless liquid that would turn black when smeared in milk. 
She's burned through a lot of her riches already with her spy work. So Ben also sends her some $50,000 in Confederate money to help cover her recruitment efforts. Then one night, she goes to the back door to find Mary Jane there. The pressure and the scrutiny have become too much, and she's run away from the Confederate White House. The next day, Lizzie puts her friend into a farm wagon, then gets two servants to cover it up with horse manure, and gets her smuggled up north to safety. I guess that's one way to keep guards from looking at the wagon too closely, but ugh, that is Shawshank Redemption level gross. Mary Jane will come back down south after the war, teaching newly freed children at a school in Richmond and elsewhere, and gives some speeches in New York about her exploits under false names like Richmondia Richards. After 1867, she falls off history's map. I wish I could tell you more, but we just don't know what happened to her. Lizzie, increasingly paranoid about being watched and eager for the war to end, starts writing to General Grant, leader of the Union Army. She hides all of his replies in hollow lion figurines flanking her fireplace. May God bless and bring you soon to deliver us. We are in an awful situation here. She continues to feed him information, helping him foil raids and get closer to conquering Richmond, knowing that taking over Richmond will effectively end the war. Later, Grant will write her a letter saying, You have sent me the most valuable information received from Richmond during the war. On March 14, 1865, she sends him enough intel about troop numbers and supplies in Richmond that he's able to strike the final blow. Try and imagine it. Richmond, burning, everything in chaos. Locals run to her house and beg her to hide their valuables. If she is a spy, which most people suspect by now, they trust the Union won't burn her house down. Union soldiers break out of the prisons en masse, make it to her house, and collapse there. When desperate Confederates come to her house to burn it, she bravely meets them out in the yard. I know you, and you, and you, she says, pointing her finger at them all. If this house goes, every house in the neighborhood will follow. And so it is that, just as a woman helped win the first battle of the war, another woman helps to end it. Elizabeth was arguably one of the war's most effective spies. And she didn't do it for fame. She never wrote a memoir. She just wanted to do what was right. On that final day, she raises the U.S. flag over the house right then and there. After the war, Belle and Elizabeth both find themselves with troubles and triumphs. Belle gives birth to a daughter in 1865, then chases continued fame on the theatrical stage. By the late 1860s, she's ditched the philandering Mr. Harding and is once again stateside, performing a show based on her wartime adventures. She even rides a horse across the stage from time to time. She marries again and somehow ends up having her second child in an insane asylum. Oh my. Making babies and the threat of being institutionalized. Just another day in the life of a 19th century lady, especially when they don't want to step in line. A few babies and several years later, it seems that Belle is losing her grip on things a bit. She shoots her 17-year-old daughter's boyfriend for supposedly deflowering her, and divorces her second husband when she finds out that he has a second wife. But don't worry, she gets married again less than six weeks later. Belle is drama. As the war fades into memory, her fortunes fade with it. 
As we know already, it's not an easy thing to make a living as a single lady in this century, especially one who spied for the losing side of a long-ago war. The Washington Daily News wrote of her, Life had been crinoline in the smell of roses. Now, Belle hardened into a strange and frightening thing. She dies of a heart attack in 1900 at the age of 56. But before she goes, she's able to say that she doesn't regret a thing. I have lied, sworn, killed, I guess, and I have stolen. But I thank God that I can say on my deathbed that I am a virtuous woman. And silly as she may have seemed to some, Bellboy made a real difference. She won hearts and helped win battles, refusing to sit by and be told who she should be. After the war ends, General Grant visits the South on a tour, and he has tea with Elizabeth Van Loo. When he becomes president of the United States years later, he makes her postmaster of Richmond as one of his first official acts. This is pretty much the highest office a woman can hold at the time, and a well-paid one, which is good because she spent a whole lot of money during the war. And oh my, do her southern neighbors hate this. The Richmond Press writes that Grant has chosen a dried-up maid who plans to start a gossiping, tea-drinking, quilting party of her own sex. She kindly declines to comment, except to ask that the press call her postmaster, please, not postmistress. You tell him, Lizzie. Post offices are not for women, supposedly. Real ladies send their servants for the mail. But during her time as postmaster, she continues to be a badass, hiring several female postal clerks and some people of color, too. A controversial, and in the South, maybe dangerous move. She campaigns to get some government money for her war service, but she only gets a third of what she requested. She refuses to write a memoir, as she thinks that will be in coarse taste. But she does write about the many injustices she still sees occurring in the South. I tell you truly and solemnly, I have suffered, she wrote to Grant. I have not one cent in the world. I'm a woman. And what is there open for a woman to do? Eventually, when Grant leaves office, she loses her postmaster job, too. It's been years since the war, but still her community punishes her. She can't sell her house. Her brother can't get a job. When her mother dies, she can't find enough people willing to carry her casket. Luckily, the many Union soldiers she helped haven't forgotten her. They send her enough money over the years to help her get by. But it sits hard, the fact that her Richmond neighbors refuse to forgive her. She, like Belle, dies in 1900, age 82. And, I'm sad to say, died pretty lonely. For decades afterward, the people of Richmond swore they saw the ghost of the woman they called Crazy Bet. She haunted her house in the streets around it, saying things like, We must get these flowers through the lines at once for General Grant's breakfast table in the morning. She's often portrayed as having been a bit crazy, that acting such was how she spied so well. But Lizzie was very smart and very savvy. She used people's blind spots, her own wits, and her passion for the cause she believed in to help it triumph in the end. She risked everything that is dear to men, friends, fortune, comfort, health, life itself. Her memorial stone reads, All for the one absorbing desire of her heart, that slavery might be abolished and the Union preserved.
It's easy to think of these women's stories as outrageous and adventurous tales, and they are. But we can't forget these women risked their lives and put themselves in very real danger to do what they thought was right. It took real guts to pull off their ingenious acts of resistance, defiance, and daring. And they didn't do it because they had to, but because they felt compelled to play some part in the conflict raging around them. These daughters of Eve refused to sit by and let themselves be punished. They took big risks, helping to change the course of history. Until next time. Thanks for listening to The Explores. If you liked it, go and rate it on Apple Podcasts and tell a few friends about it. That's the best way to help other people find me. And think about becoming a patron. For as little as $1 a month, you'll help me create the show and get exclusive access to bonus episodes. There's already over an hour of bonus goodness for your listening pleasure. Just go to Patreon and look up The Explores. My Instagram game is pretty strong, so for lots of great visuals to go along with this episode, look me up at The Explores Podcast, which is also my Facebook handle. You'll find me on Twitter at The Explores Pod. For a transcript of this episode, lots of images, a list of my sources, and more, go to www.theexploresspodcast.com. Much love to Paul Gablonski for my theme music and logo. Thanks a million to the following lady rock stars for their vocal stylings. Amanda Iman as the cunning Rose Greenhow, Caitlin Seifert as the boisterous Belle Boyd, Allison Burns as the ingenious Elizabeth Van Lu, Lulu Picard as the charming Mary Chestnut, and Ray Reynolds as the judgy Southern Belle. Go and check out their podcasts, Amanda's Picture Show A Go-Go, $10K Dollar Day, and The Woman's Blaining Podcast. You'll find links and details about them all on my website. Thanks also to my delightful bros, Avery Downing, John Armstrong, Andrew Goldman, and Simon Denatris. Many thanks to artists Jerris, John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, Domiano Baldoni, and the Advent Chamber Orchestra for lending their music to this episode. For a full list of music used, just go to my website. Next time on the Explores. Resilient, determined, defiant. Harriet Tubman and Elizabeth Keckley were both born in the South and into slavery, victims of every evil that system sustained. But they were also fighters who took two very different paths to freedom. One became one of the most successful conductors on the Underground Railroad, risking her life to liberate others. The other would become a successful dressmaker, so successful that her work was prized by the most prominent women in the land. In our first two-part episode, we'll explore the lives of these two incredible women and also what it meant to be a black woman in 19th century America, enslaved or free. Grab a steely nerve and a strong constitution. Let's go traveling. <laughs>